Well, our story starts today. It's a fall evening, and uh, he's going out tonight, some of his friends. He's looking forward to a night at the local sports bar. So he walks out of the front door of his brownstone down the stairs, down to the busy city avenue, takes a right and heads up five or six blocks away at his destination. And as he begins to walk down the street, he looks up, and in the distance, he sees her coming towards him. It's not the first time he's seen her, though they've never met. She's drop-dead gorgeous, and tonight is no exception. She is dressed to kill, obviously going out clubbing or something, and she is heading right towards him. And so his first thought is, she's out of my league. And so he puts his head down, just keeps walking, a little bit nervous, feeling a little bit insecure. But as she passes him, she stops. She asks him for some directions. He doesn't think much about it, quickly gives him gives him some directions, but then she continues to engage him, kind of chat him up. She's talking. And now it's starting to feel like she's starting to flirt with him. And now the talk's becoming suggestive, and he just can't go, he just can't figure it out. His mind's kind of going crazy. Why is she talking to me? There's no way this could be happening. And now at this point, there's no question she's coming on to him. His, his mind, his body's going crazy. And little as he know, though the alarm bells are going off in his mind, that what happens this night is going to change his life forever. Well, today we're continuing our series. Uh, it's called the Genesis Chronicles. And for those of you who are brand new, I want to welcome you. Uh, this is actually the third and final series in a trilogy of series uh, on the first three chapters of the Bible, so the three most important chapters in all the Bible. And so this, this final series is called The Rebellion uh, and Redemption. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, you know that we, we launched this series, they got in the third series, uh, uh, before we moved this building. And we, we launched it with the opening message on the first seven verses of the chapter three of Genesis. Uh, there's this very famous kind of uh, epic encounter between the serpent and the first couple. And we, we spent a lot of time there, and we talked about how Christians throughout the ages have understood this in different ways, and, and how probably most have seen this as a very literal encounter between the literal serpent and uh, literal first man, first woman actually happened. I explained like why I'm on board with that, because uh, as you see the rest of the Bible, Jesus, the New Testament seems to understand it that way. But whether you understand it that way or not, uh, all Christians who love Jesus, who believe the Word of God, is inspired by God would agree this is an epic event in human history that changes the course of all, uh, all of our race and all, all of time and all the, the universe. And today what I want to do uh, in the second message is kind of go back to that, uh, that story, back to those seven verses, and kind of unpack them and look especially at the topic of temptation. Because this opening temptation that happens here in chapter 3 is really sort of a prototype for every temptation that we ever experience. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever experienced temptation in your life? Oh, that's good. Well, you're in the right place. Uh, that's good. I won't ask you how it went. Uh, that'll be for later. Uh, but uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to take your Bibles out. If you've got them, uh, if you've got your applications, go ahead and uh, turn your apps. Go to uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to run through these opening seven verses kind of rapidly. We spent much more time on them last time. And then come back and say, hey, what can we learn about temptation uh, and how it works in our lives. And so there in your note sheet's a section called Temptation, the Prototype. I will pick it up at verse number one. Chapter three, verse one. 
So the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And we talked this last time. The New Testament clearly identifies the serpent as Satan himself. And so he said to the woman, um, he, he comes up, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, last time we talked about this, this is almost the exact opposite of what God said. What God had said back in chapter 2 is this whole incredible place, it's all for you. I've made this for you. The river, the streams, the, the, the trees, the fruit trees, all for you. You can have whatever you want, whenever you want. It's all for you. There's just one exception. The exception is this one tree in the middle of the garden. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that because on the day that you eat from that, you will surely what? You surely die. And so he says, there's just kind of one exception. So so uh, we talked about this, how that tree was really not so much about the tree or the fruit. It was really about choice, and the choice is whether you're going to trust your creator or whether you're going to rebel against your creator, kind of strike out on your own. And so what God had said is this is all for you. It's a gift. Eat whatever you want, whatever, whenever you want. But when the Satan comes, the serpent comes, his question is, hey, word on the street is, I've heard that you're never to eat any other fruit here. Is, is that really true? And obviously, he knows it's not true. What he's doing is he's planting seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. And what he's suggesting is that this God, this creator that you think is so cool, that you think is so awesome, that's giving you all this, he really has ulterior motives. That this God is not really good, you can't trust him. And catch this, I want you to catch this phrase, that therefore his commands are restrictive and not protective. That his commands are not to protect you from death. He said you're going to die, that's not going to happen. They're really restrictive, restricting you from life, right? And so then after he plants that down, the woman straightens him out in verse 2 and says, well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say there's this one tree in the middle of the garden, and you can't eat, you can't eat it, you can't touch from it, or you'll die. And so now he's going to come on frontal assault, just full on, kind of assault the integrity of God, the goodness of God, and he says, you'll surely not die. That's not the truth. Uh, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Open. Now catch that. It's really important. He says, your eyes will be open. Um, and you will be like God. You'll know good from evil. So what's really going to happen is God knows this, that when you eat, that moment you eat, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be a lot smarter. You're going to understand how life works. You're going to know what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, and so you're not going to need God anymore to tell you what to do. You'll be able to figure it out on your own. You'll be kind of like your own God, right? So, so life will be better. And so she ponders that, and then she comes to this fatal moment where she steps over the line, and I want you to catch this. In our lives, there's always a fatal moment where you step over the line, right? Like temptations, what happens is we, we evaluate it. Well, should I, should I not? The pros, the cons, we wait. But there comes that fatal moment where we step over the line. We bite. And so that's what happens. And so she, uh, she, she looks at this fruit. She's thinking this through, thinking through what he says. She looks at the fruit, and hey, it looks good for food. doesn't look dangerous. Uh, it's pleasing. The eye's beautiful. It looks like strawberries or an apple or something. It just looks really good. And it's also desirable to attain, to gain wisdom. I mean, who doesn't want to be smarter? And so she, she steps over the line. She takes it. She eats it. She gives some to her husband who was with her. And we talked about this last time. We don't know why he's there. We don't know why he's being so passive, why he's not protecting, why he's not speaking up, why he's not doing his job. He's a very passive husband. And uh, he just kind of goes along with her and says, okay, and he eats some too. And the moment they do this, their whole world blows up. Now, now they're not going to understand all that God means by death in this moment. But they're going to begin to understand their world falls apart. Remember, up to this moment in time, all they've known is good. Uh, all they've known is harmony. All they've known is love. All they've known is joy. All they've known is peace. 
They've never been afraid once in their life. They've never known guilt. They've never known shame. All they've known is freedom. And the moment they eat, everything changes. And so in verse 7, their first awareness is that they're naked. So the eyes of both of them are open. And I want you to catch that. What did Satan promise? So if you eat of it, the eyes will be what? Open. What happened? Their eyes are open. Maybe not the way they thought, but uh, they were open. And they realized that they were naked. And so we've talked about this more than once. You know, up to this point, they're like little kids running through the sprinkler on a hot summer day, take your clothes off. They're completely innocent, unaware, not concerned about their bodies, just free. They're full of joy. But now suddenly that world comes to an end and they realize there's something wrong with them. And this physical nakedness is a kind of a symbol for a deeper, deeper spiritual nakedness. And they haven't figured this all out yet, but they're gonna they're become aware that something is deeply wrong with them. There is a moral nakedness, there's a spiritual nakedness, there's a relational nakedness, there's a, 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 not just a physical nakedness. And so they're aware of this, and their first instinct is to cover up. Now catch this, this is big because they've never seen clothes. This is hard for us to even imagine, right? There is no Banana Republic, there's no Gap, there's no Target, there's no Nordstrom's, you can't go online, there's no such thing as Black Friday. All right, so you, you've never seen clothes. You don't know clothes. All they know is, I need to cover up. It's kind of instinctive. And so they're looking around for lights. What's the biggest thing around here? And they find fig leaves that actually grow really quite big in the Middle East. And so they, they, they find uh, these fig leaves, and they start uh, sewing them together, and they make coverings for themselves. And it's really a sad and pitiful sight uh, of our first parents who've only known love, affection, trust, joy, freedom, uh, now kind of running for cover, uh, experiencing fear, guilt, shame, uh, broken relationship, hostility towards one another, brokenness with God. It's just a really sad sight. But we talked about a lot of that last time. What I want to do today, though, is focus specifically on the topic of temptation. Because what you see in this passage is the very first temptation. And what I'm suggesting is that this temptation is the prototype of every temptation. The way this temptation works is the way Every temptation you've ever experienced in your life or mine works. And so here's what I want you to do. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Temptation, the Principles. And what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through kind of four temptation principles. that are kind of prototypical principles about how temptation works. And number one and number two are going to go very fast. Number three is going to be very long. So don't think I forgot. Uh, Number four, I'll go fast, but um, here's what I want you to do. As we launch in, I want you to go back in your mind, and I want you to think of one of the greatest temptations you've ever had that you made the wrong decision, All right? We're going to break into small groups and share those. <laughs> hey, it's a new building, new things. Uh, now, uh, I, I want you to think back on one of the biggest temptations of your life that you failed at, right? And I want you to get that really kind of clearly in your mind, all right? So as we listen, as we go through these principles, I want you to be thinking of that temptation. And then I also want you to do one other thing. I want you to think through the biggest temptation you're facing in your life right now. Maybe it's in the area of anger. Maybe it's a forgiveness issue. Maybe it's a sexuality issue. Maybe it's a money issue. Maybe it's an integrity issue. Maybe it's a marriage issue. I don't know what it is. Uh, but what, what is the biggest temptation? Something you know God is saying, do this or don't do this, and you are being tempted to do the opposite, all right? So I want you to take those two temptations, one from your past and the one from your present, I want you to put them on today like glasses so you look through these four principles through that lens, all right? Because I think that would be much more powerful for you as you kind of reflect and like, 
oh, I can see how that worked out, or I see how that's working out now, all right? So the first two will go pretty, pretty fast. Here we go. Number one, the first thing that jumps out at me from this first temptation is that every temptation tells a lie. Like, when, whenever you, I don't care what your temptation, anger, sexuality, money, relationally, physical, whatever it is, that every temptation tells a lie. So, like, some of you guys like to break down cars or break down engines or break down motorcycles or whatever, and you kind of take things apart. And what I'm saying is if you take temptation, I don't care which temptation it is, and you break it, it's an addiction. It's, uh, you know, whatever it is, you break it down, then at the heart, there's a lie. And here's what I want you to catch. It is the same lie every time. That's why I'm calling this message the lie. And here's the lie. The lie is God is not good. That Satan will come and say in one way or another that, no, you don't want to trust God in this one because he's not really looking out for you. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not good. And you see it here in this passage. Satan comes, and he comes to Eve, and what's his very first question? His very first question is, hey, I've heard that you're not able to eat. There's a beautiful fruit here. I've heard you can't eat any of it. It's all off limits. Now, why is he asking this? He knows it's not true. Because he's planting a seed of doubt about the character and the motives and the goodness of God. What he's like raising this issue in the back of your mind is that God is not really good. He's not looking out for you. This command is not for your best. Catch this. This command that God says, don't eat this, this will kill you, it's not a warning to protect you. It's a rule to restrict you. That's at the heart of it, right? So every temptation, whatever you ever experience, if you break it down, it says God says, that we, and we're being tempted to do what God doesn't say, there is a... The, the lie there that God is not good. He's not looking out for you. Now catch this. There is absolutely, at this point in the story, there is absolutely no reason for Eve to believe this. Why? Because if you stop through and, we, and, and, and look at, at life, all she's experienced is the goodness of God. Right? Like if you go back to chapter 1, remember we, back in chapter 1, seven times God creates and he says, it is what? Good. The last time it is very good, right? And we saw that all this creation, the first seven days, uh, all leading up, however you see those days, remember, it, all leading up to the creation of the first couple who God has created to rule over this creation as king, the first king and queen, as friends and lovers. This is all a gift, and it's all good. And then when you get to chapter 2, we zoom in to one particular place in this new creation where God creates this exquisite garden, like a beautiful nature preserve. It's full of beautiful trees, huge river running through it. Got all the fruit trees. And God says, this is all for you. And by the way, Adam, I'm going to create a, a, a spouse for you. And they enter this incredible relationship of, of friends and lovers. It's a relationship with God is great. Life is great. The relationship with one another is great. What's not to like? So what I want you to catch is when the serpent comes, there is no basis for this lie. And yet, the lie is, is given. And it's, the, it's at the heart of every temptation that you and I will ever face. Okay, so that's number one. Every temptation tells a lie. Number two, every temptation makes a promise. 
Now, this is kind of the flip side of the first one. If every temptation tells a lie, it also then on the flip side makes a promise. And here's the promise is that if you do this, life will be better. Every t- I don't care what the temptation is. If you do this, life will be better. You will be happier. You'll be more fulfilled. There may be an acknowledgement that, yeah, there's a price to pay for this, but if there is, it will be worth it. Okay, life, will get, life will be better. So, hey, lie to your boss, life will be better. Leave your spouse for the younger woman, life will be better. Uh, hold on to your money, don't be generous towards God and towards people, life will be better. Uh, refuse to forgive that ex-spouse that ripped you off and lied about you in court and stole your kids, life will be better. Uh, blow up, you're mad at your, 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 your wife or your husband, blow up, uh, let them have it, uh, life will be better. And so, so whatever the temptation is, the promise is always the same. If you do this, if you rebel, life will be better. And what I want you to catch is that there is some truth in this. And this is very important for us. Like the enemy is not stupid. You know, remember we, we, last time we were together in this passage, we talked about John chapter 8 and verse 44. And Jesus talks about Satan as a murderer from the beginning. And he said that he's the father of lies. And then when he speaks, he speaks his native language. In other words, he's fluent in deception. He's really good at this. Satan is never going to come and give you a half-baked lie. He's always going to mix a lot of truth and a little bit of lie. It's always the way it works. And it's a lie that's going to get you. But there's going to be a lot of truth. And I want you to catch this, how this works. Satan comes to Eve and he says, listen, that is not the truth. You will not die. The truth is, if you eat this, your eyes will be what? Open. Well, were they? Yeah, they're open. And he said, you'll know the difference between good and evil. Well, did they discover the difference between good and evil? Yes. I mean, what we, what we forget is that up to this point, they'd only known good. They had an incredible life. They didn't know evil. They had never been betrayed. They had never been lied to in their whole lives. They had never wondered how they're going to pay the bills. They've never wondered, is there enough food? They've never worried, hey, are God and I on the same page? Are we good with one another? They'd never experienced fear in their life, ever. Never had shame, never had guilt, never had conflict with one another. Adam had never spent one night on the couch. It was perfect. And the moment they rebelled, they began to experience in a firsthand way evil. So did Satan keep his promise? In a way. Your eyes will be open. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Not the way they thought, but he kept his promise. And here's what I want you to catch. When Satan makes a promise, when temptation makes a promise, to a large degree, it often keeps it. So let's think about this. You lied to your boss. Is life better? Well, probably. I mean, if you would have told him the truth, he would have fired you. You still have a job. Is life better? Yeah, it's better. How you sleep with your girlfriend? Do you feel closer? Chances are you might. Feel more connected? Chances are you might. Uh, you hold on to all your money? 
Let your bank account get bigger? Do you feel more secure? Good chance. You refuse to, to forgive your ex-spouse who ripped you off and you never wanted a divorce and they left with another woman or another man and then they lied about you in court and got custody, have custody, joint custody with your kids? And you hold on to that anger and you refuse to forgive them? Does that make you feel powerful? Does it make you feel like they're getting what they deserve? Yeah, it does. feels better. This is why we do it. This is why we give in to temptation, because it feels better. It always feels better. You see, temptation makes a promise. The promise is life will be better, and to a large degree, it keeps its promise. Number three. This is the one where we want to like, focus in, spend some more time. Every temptation leads to consequences. And in biblical language, the consequence is death. So, so in, in, in Bible speak, there's a path to life, there's a path to death. Death is much more in the Bible than physical death. It includes that. Death is spiritual death. It's emotional death. It's psychological death. It's relational death. It's cosmic death. And yes, it's physical. Like we were created for life, and, and, and when we step outside of God, we experience death, and there's, it's multidimensional, right? And so what the Bible is telling us is that when we rebel against the source of all life, if you cut yourself off the source of all life, the end result is always going to be death. There's going to be consequences for that because just the way life is, is wired. And you see that in this passage. The moment that the man and the woman rebel against God, there's a death that comes in their life. And guess what? We're going to see in coming weeks, and if you were to read through, this is a death that's going to go on and on. Right? There, there's going to be a death in their relationship. There's going to be a death in their vertical with God. They're going to be afraid of God. There's going to be a death in their horizontal with one another. It's going to be blame. They're going to be blaming and name-calling, and, and there's going to be betrayal on their relationship. Their kids are going to grow up and kill one another. There's going to be polygamy that breaks out in the race. Sexual immorality is going to become rampant. Violence is going to rule in the culture. Like, death is going to come in many different forms. And so what did God say? God said, don't eat the fruit, for in the day that you eat it, you will what? Die. And so, so here's the point, is that God was telling the truth. That God's commands are always protective. Protecting us from death. They're never restricting. That was the lie. They're, they're never restricting. They're never arbitrary. They're always for our best. I, I like to think of God's commands as like trail markers. Like, I don't know if you've ever gone hiking or backpacking, but it is really a bummer if you're on a poorly marked trail. Have you ever been there? And you're like, well, do I go this way or that way? Right? I remember the, the very first time I hiked Rocky, Rocky Peak Trail up here, getting ready to go to Israel, I was like very early in the morning. It was like kind of dark. And I remember coming to this first point, and I was like, well, which way do I go? You know, it's like, I remember one time when I was uh, backpacking in the Sierras, the buddy, we were going up there in October. It was on the edge of winter, right? It was just kind of virgin. On the way up there, we were talking about the Donner Party. 
who went, uh, you know, over in the edge of winter, and then the snowstorm comes, and they end up eating one another. And so we've been talking about that. And on the way up there, uh, we decided, hey, you know, why don't we go to a different location? We were going to go, we were going to, uh, gonna go to this location to go backpacking. Let's go to this location. Yeah, that sounds like a better one. That sounds great, you know. Not thinking like, hey, you might want to let someone know that you changed your plans. Like, like your wives, maybe. And, uh, and so we, we take off, and, and we're hiking, and it's like, hey, this trail is kind of, let's go, let's go across country in the Sierra Nevadas in the edge of winter. Let's just do that. That'd be fun, right? Let's go across this stream and across this river, and, and then this freak snowstorm hit. And it snowed for 24 hours. Snowed rain. And we, we get, and I, we're trying to find, we cannot find the trail. We end up in this plateau high above a river, and we're praying in a tent, it's like, we don't, we're so, like, we're so, we've been hiking all day, not knowing where we're going, looking at this trail. We are beat up. We are starving, but we're just so freaked out, we're not even eating. We're having this word of prayer in the tent. And I'm like, God, please help us to see those that we love again. <laughs> and he starts going, oh, I was afraid to say that. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, what we would have given for a trail marker, right? Hey, this is the way. Right? We eventually made our way out, obviously. But that's another story. Anyway, but the, like trail markers are like a path to life, right? There's like, hey, this is the way. Go this way and you'll do well. Well, catch this. God's commands are like that. They're never restrictive. They're never arbitrary. God is just make up a sign. Like the sign is always saying this is the way to life and don't go this way. This is the way to death. And catch this, therefore, by definition, when you blow through the stop sign, you're t- putting your life in danger. Are, are you with me? Because there's no arbitrary signs. It always blows me away. I'm sure you've seen this before, but about four months from now, maybe five months from now, in the Sierra Nevadas, there's going to be someone who's going to go over the falls at Nevada Falls in Yosemite. Right? Happens almost every year. If you ever hike to Half Dome, uh, you go up through, on the trail, you go through the Vernal Falls, you go through Nevada Falls, and then you go up to Half Dome. And on top of Nevada Falls, there's this beautiful fall there, 600-foot drop. And, and in, the, in the spring, when the snow begins to melt, the river, you know, really gets to be quite large there. And, and it's really cold. And it's, it's deceptively swift. There's currents that deceptive. And so all of them have these signs of people like this. Like floating, dead. And they're like, don't go in the river. Like, this is what happens to you, right, if you go in the river. And I'm telling you, year after year, you wait. Maybe not every year, but many years. And some guy's like, I'm 28. I'm young. I'm strong. I'm not like those old people the signs are for. I'm a good swimmer. I'm tough. I've been working out. I'm not stupid. I'll stay far enough away. I was reading yesterday about this happened to a guy who was with 150 feet up from the falls. He's thinking, like, I'm safe. I'm 150 feet away. I'm safe. He steps in, hits a current, goes over 600 feet to his death, right? So here's what I want you to catch is that, that God's commands are, lead to the path of life, right? There in your note sheet, it's a great verse from Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands. Why? Because you have set 
my heart free. There was a time I used to walk slowly in God's commands. There was times I would kind of walk a little bit on this path and then a little bit on this path. There was a time I used to then kind of get more confidence in God's commands, begin to jog. Because I've come to a place in my life now where I am just so full on trusting this amazing God that I, when, I, when the sign says this way, I start jog, I run. I run in the path of his commands because every, the, the faster I run, the freer I get. You know, when our kids were young, our kids are, we have two daughters, and they're, they're both grown now, but when our kids were young, uh, we lived in Vista down in San Diego County, and we, had, we lived in this, uh, this kind, of, kind of big lot, it was like a flag lot, it had a long driveway off the main street, and it went way back, and then our house was in the back, and so if you go up our narrow driveway, on the left, there was a house, and on the right, there was this row of very tall, like about 10 foot tall, oleanders. And really, you know, it's big, like you see on the freeways, it's got big oleanders. And so it created this complete hedge. You couldn't see through them. And so when our kids were young and they wanted to learn how to ride bikes, of course, I was helping them learn how to ride their bikes. And, and there was, this driveway was perfect. It was kind of long, narrow driveway. You can kind of ride down it and learn how to do that. But after they learned to ride, I made a rule. And the rule was you can't go past the faucet. So on the side of this house that was on the right side as you went down, there was a faucet, just a normal water faucet, and I said, you can't go down there. You can't go past, you can ride up and down to that faucet, but you can't go past the faucet. And of course, this was very frustrating to my kids. It felt extremely restrictive. It felt very arbitrary. It's like, Dad, it's like this, path, this driveway is long. It's like there's at least a third or maybe a half left, you know, going down there. It's like, why do we have to stop there? And so I tried to explain it. It was just hard for them to understand. But as an adult, I realized that with that busy street that was out there, that there was, when you turned into our driveway, you could not see a thing until you were 15, 20 feet in that thing. Just the way, because of this hedge. So when you came, you had to turn in, and by the time you were in the driveway, you could see anything, you were well into the driveway. And as an adult, I could see around the corner. And I could see if my kids were riding their bike down to the end of the driveway, which to them made perfect sense because they're not going out in the street. Like, we get it, Dad, the street's dangerous. We don't want to do We just want to go to the driveway. If they went to the end of the driveway as a car was coming in, they would become a hood ornament, right? Their, their lives would be either killed, their lives would be taken, or they would be severely injured, right? Because as an adult, as a dad, I could see around the corner. And this is the thing. When God gives us a command, and especially when it makes no sense, and when it seems arbitrary, and when it seems like a faucet on the side of our life, I want you to catch this, that God's commands are never arbitrary. They're always because we see around the corner. And here's the thing. As a younger believer, if you're a new follower of Jesus, this may be harder for you, because you're just kind of getting going at this. But if you continue to grow and follow Jesus, hopefully you get better at this because you've gone down the driveway too far several times. And you've had those head-on collisions. And like, all right, okay, that's my fourth, you know, fourth time I've totaled my life. And so maybe God knows better, right? But when you're, when you're, you're younger, as a, as a follower, or you're just not, you're just not very bright, Sometimes we've been Christians a long time. We're just like, 
We've done the same year 30 times over. You know, just being a Christian a long time doesn't mean you grow, right? You can be like a 30-year-old baby Christian. <laughs> I know these screens, you can look where I'm looking. Uh, no, that can happen, right? And so, so we learn over time, but that can be very hard. It's really hard. Like, this one doesn't make sense. Like, like give me a great, a great example. When you're 17 years old and you're a guy... You want to have sex, right? That's what you want to do. And everyone around you having sex, it makes no sense. Like, why would God save, save this from marriage? Like, I can't really, what's the big deal, right? And so we have a decision to make. Do we trust and know that dad knows best or do we not? Okay, we'll come back to that later. But what I want you to catch is because God's commands are for us and not against us. Because they are never arbitrary, catch what this means. It means when you blow through one, you're taking your life in your hands. Because they're not arbitrary. It's not like you just made it up. It's like he's telling you, don't eat, you will die. So if you eat, what's going to happen? You will die. It's like some form of death is going to come into your life, and it's going to be very, very painful. In the New Testament, the, the apostle James talks about this. You know, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he writes a letter. Uh, we call it the letter of James. And he talks about temptation and how temptation works. And he uses two very powerful analogies. The first analogy is the analogy of a hunter or a fisherman. Now, I'm sure many of us here love to hunt or fish. And you know that when you're hunting or fishing, it's all about deception, Right? Like when you're fishing, it's all about, can I fool the fish? That's what it's all about. Who's smarter, the fish or me? Right, and so, so you bait the hook with something attractive. Think Genesis, something that looks good for food, something that looks desirable, right? And you hide a hook inside of it. And can I tell you, that fish, when he sees the bait and he decides to bite, he thinks it's his lucky day. But the moment he bites, it's my lucky day. <laughs> when you're trying to do hunting and you're, you're trying to snare animals, right, the whole point is deception. And so James is going to say that's how temptation works. It's like, it's like stepping into a trap. It's like biting a hook. And then he's going to change the analogy. And he's going to say it's like having illicit sex and then finding out you're pregnant. Except when you have sex with temptation, what is conceived, the baby that's born, that baby goes by a name, and the name is death. So he uses these two analogies. And so let's look and see what he says. In James chapter 1, there in your note sheet, he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Why? Because God is cannot be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt you. God is completely good. He would never try to entrap you. He's not trying to waste you. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, kind of our fallen nature, he's dragged away and enticed. Guess what? In the Greek, those two words, dragged away, enticed, those, those phrases are uh, hunting and fishing terms. And then after desire has conceived, so now he changes the metaphor. You've had kind of illicit sex with the temptation. 
after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to what? To, to death. And so this is the message. The message is God is for you. His commands lead to life. Therefore, if you blow through them, there's a price to pay, and the price is death. It's not an arbitrary price. It's just the way it is. When you cut yourself off from the source of life, the end result is death. And so we see a great example of this in the book of Proverbs. You know, today we started that, that story about the young man coming out of the brownstone, heading down the street, going up and seeing the beautiful woman. That's a story from Proverbs chapter 7. And what's going on in Proverbs chapter 7, the brownstone I made up, but the, uh, in Proverbs chapter 7, uh, there's this dad having a father-son chat with his son about the dangers of illicit sexuality, sex outside of marriage. And, and, he, and he says, uh, son, let me tell you a story. He says, once upon a time, I looked out my window, and I saw this kid, and he said he was just very naive. He didn't understand how life worked. And he was, he was walking down the street. It was about sunset, and all of a sudden, she comes out, and she is dressed to kill. You know, she's got the, the stiletto heels that slid up the side of her skirt. She's got the low-cut blouse. She is going clubbing, right? She's, she is looking good, and she's coming towards him, and he is just blown away. His heart starts to pop. He's excited, right? And so she stops and starts chatting him up. And at first, she just can't even believe this. And now she's coming on to him, and now she's flirting. And pretty soon, she is aggressively just pursuing him. And she actually puts her arms around him. This all in the Bible. I love the Bible. It keeps it so real. Puts her arms around him, pulls him to herself, kisses him. And she starts making this, this, this pitch, you know, that I've been watching you for weeks, months, whatever. And I saw you coming, and I want you. And my room is all ready. And I've got it ready. And I've got this huge four-poster bed, and I got the lights are low, the candles on, the incense is going. It's amazing. I want to make love to you all night long. Will you please come up? Hmm, I remember having dreams like this, right? Right? I mean, it's like, and this kid, you know, his heart is thumping, it's pounding, he can't even believe this is happening, but, but there's warning bells going off in his mind, right, because he knows she's a married woman. And so she, she's thought of that, too. And so she says, hey, listen, don't worry about my husband. He's on the East Coast, gone for two weeks. I got the ticket stubs. And I want you to see how that story ends. There in your note sheet, Proverbs chapter 7, says, with persuasive words, she led him astray, and she seduced him with her smooth talk, and catch this all at once. Think of Eve. Pitch is made, she looks at the fruit, looks good, it's attractive, desirable for making one so wise, the promise has been made, the lie has been, the lie has been told, the promise has been made, and all of a sudden she reaches out and she bites. There comes a line in every temptation where we have to step across or step back. And this kid... He's fighting, alarm bells are going off, he knows he shouldn't do this, boom, he bites. And all at once, he follows her, and I love this, like an ox going to the slaughter. Now, can you picture this? You know, here, oxy, 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 right? You got the corn bag, put it over his head. Mmm, so good. Plump, plump, plump. There's a guy with a huge mallet over in the corner. And this ox, he's going to be slaughtered. 
He's as happy as a clam. This is exactly what's happened to this kid. I mean, he's going upstairs. He's thinking he's got the time of his life. He's going to have stories to tell. And he will. Chances are it's going to be amazing. His buddy's going to be blown away the next day. The temptation's going to pay off like promise. Then he goes on, he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, like until the arrow pierces his liver. Notice that hunting analogy again. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his what? His life. And this is what the Bible's telling us. The Bible is telling us it's not the temptation doesn't work. It's not that it doesn't keep it. To some extent, it will keep its promise. Right? You lie to your boss, you keep your job. You leave your wife for a younger woman, you will feel young again. You will. It's gonna feel amazing. In fact, you may act like you're 13. But it's going to feel amazing, right? Hold on to that money, you will feel secure. It will, right? You have an argument with your spouse and you just let them have it. Four-letter words are flying. <laughs> Not sure how to interpret that. I don't know the gift of interpretation, but uh, this, is ha- this is going crazy, right? And you know, you know how you often, after an argument, you just think of what you wish you would have said? Like, oh, I just wish I just said this. But this one time, it all comes out just right. And you just lay them out. And it feels good, like the universe has been restored to justice. It feels amazing. But he says, in the end, it will cost you your life. The long-term consequences. And you know the thing is, is that many times when we think of sin, we think of temptation, I think we naturally think of the obvious consequences. And I want to spend a moment here, because it's really profound what we're going to be talking about. I think often we just misunderstand this, even as Christ followers. You know, when we think of temptation and the price we pay, and we're going through our mind, the pros and the cons. On the con side, we often think of the obvious things, right? Like we think like, okay, well, if I lie to my boss, what happens if I get caught? Right. Oh, that could be really bad. Right. Or we think like, well, if I sleep with my boyfriend, I, I know I'm taking protection, but what if I get pregnant? If I have this affair with this younger woman, um, what happens if I find it? My wife finds out. Like we think of the natural consequences. It was like these are the things we tend to think of, like external consequences. Are, are you with me in here? These are the natural. Okay, if this, but here's what I want you to catch. Often the biggest consequences are not just those things that happen outside of you. They're the things that happen inside of you. 
Because every time we make a choice to rebel, something breaks inside of us. And we become a different person. Every time that we lie to get out of a jam, we become more of a liar. A person that others can't really trust. And catch this, trust is the currency of relationships. When we leave our spouse for someone else, uh, we become a covenant breaker. And covenant breakers have a hard time becoming covenant makers. When you you choose to hate your ex-spouse because they, they left you for someone else and then they lied about you in court and then they stole your kids from you and you choose that I am going to hate them, and I'll, I'll never forgive them. I'll forgive anyone else, God, but that, that one person. What happens is you have just chosen to become an angry and bitter person, and you will never be free from that person. When I was a kid, I used to have those little uh, airplanes or motorized airplanes, but they weren't remote control. They had those kind too, but these kind that I'm thinking about, they were, they were on like a, a, a rod, and they had a wire to them. And you'd start it up, and you'd, you'd go around, and you'd stand there, right? You'd stand there, and this thing would just fly around you. When we choose, when we refuse to forgive someone and hang on to our bitterness, it's like there's an invisible wire that ties our heart to theirs. And we can never fly into the future God has for us because we are stuck revolving our lives around that person. And long after we have, they have forgotten us and forgotten the situation, could care less, our lives still revolve around the person who hurt us. God's not messing here. When God says, hey, this is the path to life, it's because he loves us. It's because this, you want the best out of life? Learn to run in the path of his commands. He loves you. He cares about you. His commands are never restrictive. They're always protective. And when we choose to rebel and we choose to violate, to rebel against the source of life, we die. And it's not just the outward, it's the inward stuff. Do you notice here in this passage what happens? Like I said, there's going to be all kinds of ways their life falls apart. Their relationship's going to fall apart. Their relationship with God's going to fall apart. Their kids are going to kill one another. Violence is going to spread in the culture. Polygamy is going to happen. Sexual immorality is going to become the norm. All these different forms of death, cosmologically, the world is going to be off kilter. All those forms are coming. But do you notice the very first thing that happens? The very first thing that happens is I'm naked. Something is wrong with me. I am not the person I was created to be, and I am ashamed. And, and I need to cover up. I can't let anyone see who I've become. You see, men and women, the most important thing about you is you. The most important thing about you is your soul. It's who you are at the core. It's your heart. It's the most important thing about you. And when we rebel against the Lord of life, our heart dies. 
and we lose our capacity for life. We become the person that can't be trusted. We become the person that's narcissistic. We become the angry person. We become the hateful person. We become the self-absorbed person. We become the stingy person. You see, when we rebel against life, we die. There in your note sheet, I put a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's long, it's a little heady, but it's worth it. He says, people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I don't think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning that central part of you, the part of you that chooses, I would call that you know, our self or our soul or our heart, into a little different into a little different from what it was before, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that's in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To to be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. And catch this, each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. God loves you. He loves me. His commands are a path to life. We break through them to our own death. Lisa number four. Number four is that every temptation raises a question. Every time you're faced with a temptation, every time I'm faced with a temptation, every temptation you've ever faced, Every temptation will ever, it raises a question, and here is the question, who do you believe? And I want to go back to this Genesis account, because remember, this is how the story starts. Satan comes, makes his pitch. God is not for you. He's against you. He's trying to hold you down. He's being restrictive. He's lying to you. If you want the most out of life, strike out on your own. Life will be better. That's his pitch. Now, the question is, who do you believe? And here's what I want you to catch. Every time that you and I face temptation, there is a core issue. And the issue is, do you believe your creator or do you believe the enemy? Do you trust God or do you trust yourself? And you know what? Temptation reveals who we trust. Because the decisions we make at times of temptation, and catch this, especially at those times where the temptation is the hardest, where obedience costs us the most, where obedience seems arbitrary, when we can't see why God would say this, at those times in our life, they are life destiny moments, 
At those moments, we find out who we trust. Because if we trust God, we obey. If we trust the enemy and ourselves, we disobey. And it's as simple as that. And you can see why then faith is such a big deal in the Bible. Because the issue is, ultimately, who do we trust? And so every temptation raises a question. And the question is, who do you trust? And the answer will determine your destiny. Let's pray. Father, while our heads are down, our eyes are closed, God, we just want to come before you as a church. And Lord, I know in a room like this, we have so many stories. If we were in a small group together, we could share them. Times where we thought better, times where your commands didn't make sense, times where we knew that you were saying go right, but we wanted to go left, and we chose left. And we have paid the price. And our lives have been messed up as a result. And God, we also, there have been times in our life where we've listened, we followed, we submitted, we trusted, we did the hard thing, and we reaped the, the reward that we experienced life. Life is what it's created to be, a little bit more what it's created to be. And so, God, we come to you, and we, we understand, Lord, as a race, we are so drawn to the dark side. But through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, you've come to live within us, and you put new desires. And God, I pray you teach us to listen and to trust. But I think that that woman at the well who came before you, she'd been married five times, currently living with a man. She's looking for love in all the wrong places. She was looking for that place in her life to satisfy that deepest hunger and thirst of her life. And you promised her, you said, you know what? There is a well you don't know about. If you drink from this well, you will never get thirsty. So God, we pray in those moments of temptation, we pray that we would look to the well that never runs dry and we would turn away from the lure of the dark side. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Father, we just want to say that there's been many times in our lives where we have been drinking water from that wrong well. God, we have looked at other gods to satisfy those needs that only you can satisfy. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me just speak to you for just a minute. I just want to remind you of the grace of his cross. And I'm sure that as we're here today, there's many of us who said, you know what, that's where I'm at right now. I've been drinking water from that wrong well, and I, I want to come home. And I just want to remind you that his love is there for you. His grace is there. It's why he died, to make a way for us. I just want to encourage you that there may be consequences for the path you've been on. It may take time to heal. But his love for you is, sta- is, is stable. His love for you will never change. And so I just invite you to come home today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, just know that no matter where you've been, he always cares more where you're, coming f- where you're going than where you're coming from. And there's forgiveness through his cross for you as you come under his leadership. And so, God, we come to you as your church. And, God, we confess that there have been times we have run after other gods, we have drunk from other wells, and they have left us thirsty. And God, we've had to learn the hard way. And so, God, we want to come back. We kind of under your leadership and walk with you and learn to trust that you are good, you are wise, you know what's best, and you always see around the corner, you're always looking out for our best interest. And so, God, we pray 
that you would cause us then to sink deep, to really trust in this love that you have for us and would sink deep in that love, can leave these other loves behind. And God, as we worship you now, as we bring you our offerings, we pray that you'd meet us in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Our prayer is that our one desire would be to know you and to pursue you. We are so sick and tired of running after other gods. Your word says, my people has committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have hewn out cisterns, reservoirs, broken cisterns that hold no water. And God, we are a people that we want to confess that we have many times done that. We have run after other gods. We have pursued other lovers. We have drunk from other fountains and other wells, and they have left us dry. So God, today we want to come and embrace this truth that you are good. You are all good. You are completely good. You love us passionately. And God, we would pray today that you would increase our heart and our passion for you. That our passion for you would exceed all other passions and all other lovers in our life. God, we pray not that just you'd take away the desire for what is evil and wrong and destructive. We pray that you would light a fire in our hearts for what is right and good and true. And as our passion for you grows, it would quench all other passions. And that we would run hard after you in the path of your commands, for you have set our heart free. God, we want to be a church that sets free. We want to be lives that are set free. We want to have marriages that are set free and families that are set free. And we want to be part of a culture that is set free. And so, God, we pray that you would release us to pursue you with a full heart. You would fill our hearts with a passion that would not die, that our love would go deep, and we would be going strong, and our roots would go deep in you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen, Rocky Peak. Hey, as we wrap up today, a couple things. Obviously, Thanksgiving week. And so I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. And then this next weekend, be back here because we'll continue this series in the Genesis Chronicles with a special message in the series that really has to do with spiritual warfare and the role Thanksgiving plays in the spiritual battle that we're in. So I hope you can be with us next weekend for that. I want to remind you that after the service, we always have a ministry that's a prayer team ministry that's here to my right over at the far wall. Several people over there. If you have prayer, you need prayer for anything. You need prayer for something physical in your life, a hard time you're going through. Maybe it's a temptation you're facing. Maybe it's a loved one you want some extra prayer for. But whatever the need, go over there. I would love to pray with you. Until next week, uh, may the Lord be with you and may your passion for him grow and exceed all other passions that we might leave these false idols behind. We might leave these false gods behind leave these other lovers behind that leave us empty and that we would run after the true God, the lover of our soul that transforms and recreates us as we pursue him one step at a time. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next weekend.